Welcome to GovCast, connecting with federal IT decision makers. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Joining me today is Ryan McLean. Am I saying your name right? Yeah. And Ryan, can you tell me a little bit about your role with SOCOM and tech? Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Kate. This is awesome. Uh, so I have two roles. Uh, I'm the director of the Tech Product Center, which serves the uh, pretty much the entire federal government. Uh, we provide a suite of situational awareness and command and control products. Um, and at SOCOM, I've got a second hat as the chief engineer to PEO Soft Digital Applications, where we are really breaking a lot of new ground in SOCOM as, as far as how we deliver software to soft users. Cool. So can you provide a brief overview of the tactical assault kit and its importance to the warfighter and SOCOM in particular? Sure. Uh, tactical assault kit, or, or when it's used by civilians, team awareness kit, is is really simple uh, in, in its nature. Like the reason for it is pretty pithy. It's friendly force identification and target correlation. Um, we've known that in the DOD for a long time. Friendly force ID and target correlation are very critical to many warfighting functions. We learned that the hard way multiple times in Iraq and Afghanistan, but especially in uh, December of 2001, there was uh, a special operations team who was actually helping Hamid Karzai um, make his way into Kandahar. And uh, it turns out when, when you remove the batteries back 20 years ago from the common dagger GPS tool, uh, back then, not today, when you take the batteries out, if you were looking at your target position on the device and you put new batteries in, your own position would show up. So the right bomb went to the wrong place. Yeah, no, it was a really bad day for a lot of people. Um, American service members died. Several were critically injured. Good came out of that. Um, it took several years for, for technology to lightweight enough for the right approaches to materialize and uh, for, for product to get in the hands of users. But one of the things that shook out of that incident, literally uh, after intervention by the Secretary of the Air Force, was Android Map. Uh, Android Map was an experiment by Air Force Research Laboratory to say, can we do friendly force identification and target correlation on a, a new device, a smartphone? So this is back in 2007, 2008, um, with several other, other related experiments before that. So that, that's kind of the thread that we've been on for, uh, goodness, 14, uh, 15 years as a community is, 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 is very simple. How can we make friendly force identification, target correlation easier and faster? Um, I think we're starting to see friendly force ID and target correlation start to morph into other domains too, where we have to be able to do that per JADC2 strategy in multiple domains. So we see TAC used in, in several use cases across the JADC2 spectrum of technologies. Um, but really we see TAC used elsewhere outside of the, the federal government, uh, wildland fires. So people are, are fighting wildland fires every day out west right now. And they, on their own volition, have found TAC to be incredibly useful. And so they're often off-grid. They'll bring in off-grid radios to be able to communicate with each other TAC enables that because it is, you know, we adopt what the government would call a modular open systems approach. So the source code itself is all owned by the U.S. government. That's another, like, kind of big thing about TAC is it's unlimited rights. It's not government purpose rights. It's not restricted rights. TAC through and through is unlimited rights, which lets us do 
whatever the government needs to do with TAC, um, including implementing uh, plug-in architecture. So um, it's highly extensible. It's usable. Um, and it, it is a perfect no. Like, we know that there are um, things that can be more usable about TAC. So that's why we exist at the TAC Product Center, to facilitate this growing community of over 350,000 users now, uh, over 3,000 developers, um, and a very lean staff at the Tech Product Center, we facilitate the improvement of tech. We're not necessarily doing a lot of that improvement ourselves. Uh, that's it's kind of a community-led effort these days. Uh, multiple program offices across the U.S. government, vendors will improve it uh, as, as it suits their, their product offering. Um, but, but we provide that singular conduit for stewarding the TAC capabilities and releasing them. Um, so there's only one TAC in the U.S. government, uh, but many people buy into it. Gotcha. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of open systems architecture in relation to TAC? Uh, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and hear from you a little, a little bit about that because I've, I've heard that a lot from a lot of people the last couple of days at SOFIC. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny, if you go to the, I, I just researched this myself recently. Um, so like, sure, I'm a technologist in the government. I've, I've known the MOSA, Modular Open Systems Approach or Architecture acronym for a long time. But um, somebody asked me about it and I was like, my goodness, I really don't know like the, the official like policy and technical position on MOSA. So I went and looked it up and it's, um, it's, it's no more um, concrete than, than an idea. It's a practice. It's something you build into your system. It's a concept. Um, and and so when when we think of um TAC and and MOSA, like they're kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. Like it just kind of it's how we've built TAC for a long time. Um so I guess we kind of check the policy box. Like, are we doing MOSA? Yeah, sure, but like, you know, there's more to it. Um we I think we've seen MOSA take multiple forms in the TAC community. So like sure we, we allow for plugins to be to be developed. We um uh, we leverage a design pattern um um of adapters and so we specifically use adapters as opposed to like feature flagging because it allows users across the community and program offices to configure the TAC kit. Sorry for the for the double acronym there, but the TAC kit uh in exactly the, the manner they need. So uh for example, like an army soft organization is going to configure their TAC setup um, from, from their gear all the way up to the software in a very different way than, uh, let's say, um, a federal law enforcement organization would. There's going to be common aspects beyond friendly force identification target correlation. They're going to have some of the same radios. They're going to have um, some of the same needs to do very refined um, positioning on the map. Um, but we 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 uh, I'd say embody Moso like kind of like down to like every line of source code intact is it could almost be like construed as Moso because we design the software to be that way we design it so that anybody in industry or in the government can tailor tack to what they need. Um, but then when you look at, I think, a more complicated space, which is like military data links, um, and uh, and some people will look at TAC and they'll say, well, well, can it do variable message format or VMF? Can can TAC do Link 16? Um, we 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 kind of say the answer is 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 yes asterisk. Like people use in, in military communities, they use ATAC or WinTAC or or, or TAC server to ingest and put out these special messages that we use for, you know, fighter aircraft, command and control, all kinds of military exquisite technologies from TAC uh, or within TAC. But TAC doesn't do those things, nor does it need to inherently. So what they'll do is they'll develop a plugin that allows them to extend 
tack in a very you know non-commercial military unique way. So where uh, where TAC is, embodies MOSA for many, many commercial applications, um, it uh, almost identically embodies MOSA in a military sense as well and allows for these these various you know proprietary, uh, either closed or open interface technologies to be integrated and, and allow the, the team on the ground or in the air uh, or at sea to be on the same sheet of music for, for the duration of the mission. Yeah. So... Can you talk a little bit about the cybersecurity risks or just general cyber challenges that you have to address that are associated with the open source software nature of TAC? Indeed. Um, kind of like MOSA, like security is just part of our culture. Um, so, so like, sure, we have a cybersecurity lead at the Tech Product Center, um, and, and, and we rely on that person to, to go execute a vision for cybersecurity. Um, but we, we embrace it continually. Um, we, uh, you know, just like any good software organization would do, we, we include, um, like, industry standard scans in our build processes for the products and the plugins themselves. Um, but then we also partner with organizations to do independent assessments of what we offer, whether it's the client applications, the server application, or even our website and development tools, or even our, you know, our, our tools that we use on a day-to-day basis to, to you know, to communicate um, in, inside the product center. We believe that cybersecurity is an ongoing thing. We don't believe it's ever done. Um, and so we, we have this philosophy uh, with our products that every product is, um, sure, it's, it's additive in a feature sense. But it's also, um, I guess, maybe additive in a cybersecurity sense. Uh, we're not bolting on security. We're, we're identifying vulnerabilities in a scientific way, and we're mitigating those vulnerabilities. We'll hear the comment once in a while in, in various communities, um, and it's almost kind of like a whisper, like somebody say, oh, did you hear TAC has a vulnerability? Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, okay, um, well, first of all, like, bring that to us. Like, we want to fix that for people. And second of all, what version are you on? Because we know there are vulnerabilities. Yeah. We've mitigated them. We've found them. Um, and we've made those as part of our, our core offering. We've, yeah. we've mitigated those for the community, not just, you know, a specific user. So we, we do, um, I'd say, apply due diligence to cybersecurity. It's part of the culture. Um, and, and I think, like, if you look at, industry, they say it should never be like a bolt-on thing. Um, so like deploying an antivirus tool on a device, like that can be a good additive measure for cybersecurity. Um, but if, if the product you're shipping uh, doesn't embrace in, in situ vulnerability mitigation, um, like why, why, would you, why would you trust that to be safe in production? So uh, we treat our software the same way. Uh, we know that vulnerabilities will be discovered um, either in the operating systems that we run on, on the communication networks that we use, the tech users use, or in the tech products themselves. Um, and so I would say we're, like, we're fine with that. We're certainly on guard against it. But we make every effort to identify those, suss them out, and, and squash them. Now, as far as open source, that opens up a new conversation with, you know, so we've open sourced ATAC Civ to, to GitHub. We're in the process of open sourcing tech server, and we do intend to open source the rest of the tech products. So it's great for industry. It really breaks down a barrier between us and industry. Of course, it also opens up the source code of these products to foreign actors, bad foreign actors potentially. So when we go through our due diligence and we, we, we go through a very rigorous process before we open source, we don't just hit the button on GitHub and say, here you go, world, here's, here's ATAC or here's tech server or whatever. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a robust playbook that we follow, uh, follows all uh, U.S. government regulations to do so. And, of course, one of the questions that often comes up is, well, like, why can't uh, adver- potential adversary X, Y, or Z use that against us? 
And so there, I think it's less of a technical mitigation thing. So we we mitigate, we mitigate technical vulnerabilities on a regular basis, right? Um, when it comes to open source, I think there's a different set of questions that need to be asked. One is whether the the doctrine and policy of potential adversaries actually maps to TAC. If you recall, TAC was born out of the special forces community um, and under the broader special operations umbrella. We've always operated in, in special operations command under the idea of decentralized execution. If you look at potential adversaries, they're, they're evolving command and control to be more like that which is what TAC was originally designed to solve, which you know, the, the command and control through friendly force identification target correlation. Now, when we look at whether those adversaries can use TAC, I mean, we, we don't know. We can't say that authoritatively. Like, can it be useful to, like, plot red X or plot blue dots, their blue dots, you know, and our red diamonds, I guess, on, on an ATAC map? I mean, sure, I guess, I guess maybe that's useful to that extent, but it, it kind of goes against the, like, legacy like old command and control models of centralized control centralized execution really run against the grain of u.s and allied command and control which is centralized control decentralized execution so um and, and then like can, can people like you know intentionally commit nefarious code back to the tax source code no because um one it's always a u.s government person that is doing the uh, kind of the mirroring of the controlled tax source code to the public GitHub repository. So we maintain our source code um, in an environment that is separate for people who are specifically enrolled on TAC.gov to have access to that source code, authorized under a U.S. government to do so, under, under a U.S. government contract by a U.S. government person to do so. GitHub merely exposes that code in a primarily read-only fashion. Um, can people commit changes back? Like, yes, that's half the reason for us doing open source. Is like we want the community to be able to be able to develop against these products in a way where we manage in a strict fashion what is brought back into the core products that officially are shipped by us from TAC.gov and then published out to. Uh, whatever program of record and, and official configuration. So, uh, I, I think I think it's an awesome question. Uh, I think it's it's um it's both nuanced and it's like like we kind of treat it as two different ballgames. So like the security of the products is different from the security of open source, and I feel comfortable that that we kind of decouple the product the security of open source from the security of the products themselves. Yeah, definitely. So given the prevalence of DevSecOps, DOD's new software modernization strategy, which prioritizes software factories, you know, like Bespin, Kessel Run, Army Software Factory. Yes. Do you guys share information with DOD regarding all the work you're doing with tech and all of the rapid software development you're doing, updates, modernization, like just general software development and security strategies? And if so, like what is this what is this back and forth like collaboration look like? So I, I'm reminded off the bat that like we can we can probably do more to share the message of what we're doing and maybe maybe this helps. But um, we have take we have taken some concrete steps to just better integrate with like Platform One for example, um, Kessel Run for example. Um, I come from a background where where I'm still an Air Force Reservist. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to go back on orders and start a new software organization. We call it Corsair Ranch, um, and and we premised that on the Platform One Party Bus model. So we said, hey, okay, great Platform One. Like we're not going to be able to stand up a managed platform as a service or PaaS on our own. You know, get our own infrastructure deployed, accredit it. That was the reason for Platform One, was was allow all these different domain-specific organizations across the Air Force and DOD to rely on a central organization to provide a managed PaaS and managed infrastructure as a service. So um, with that in mind, when I came to Tech Product Center 
uh, last summer. Now, I've, I've been in the tech world for, I don't know, probably nine years now. I started off at AFRL, went to industry, did a lot of tech stuff there, uh, came back to SOCOM, and um, that's another story for another day, but, like, ended up at the Tech Product Center, which is just incredible. It's a dream job. Um, so learning what I learned about Platform One and having made some connections at Bestman and Kessel Run, um, I say, you know, we have warm relationships with those entities. They're not particularly, like, like you know, uh, like tight, like, you know, daily basis or weekly basis relationships, but they're good relationships. Um, I wanted us to learn more about Platform One. And, and so I know there's good things that, that have happened to Platform One, both architecturally and, and technically via policy. And as an organization too, so uh, we had an opportunity to send one of our uh, one of our people, actually our our, our uh, kind of our platform engineering lead, our Dev Tools DevSecOps lead, uh, through the Platform One developer onboarding cohort. Uh, and it was great. So he got to see a different shade of DOD DevSecOps. So we, we view ourselves as practicing like DevSecOps for a really broad community, not just DOD. But there's certainly a lot to be gleaned from all these great things that have happened in DOD. So um, we, we sent him through that developer cohort. It was an investment of three days. So it was a good investment on our part. And, uh, and so he learned a lot of good things. And so we're actually seeing um, now as a result of him going through that and just also being a curious person, which is a really cool thing in and of its own right, now we're implementing things like uh, like an Istio-based service mesh at Tech Product Center that makes our um, single cluster environment more scalable, more robust, and, and more in line with the DoD DevSecOps reference design, where I think actually pretty soon, I'm not sure if we'll make much fanfare about it, but we'll be, actually be able to say with some confidence, like, yeah, tech.gov is a managed platform as a service environment actually does conform to the DoD DevSecOps reference design as a single software factory. That would be really cool. Yeah, yeah we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, definitely. So I have one more question for you before we wrap up. Do you have any tech modernization priorities this year? And if so, what are they? Absolutely. Um, we have I, I, what I like to think is like a pretty robust roadmap. Um, and so I think when, when we roadmap, especially in the DoD, it's like often – in, in response to like, oh, well, you know, we're going to go brief so-and-so, we need a roadmap. So we, we uh, you know, one person or a group of people like throws together a roadmap and like then that roadmap is kind of like discarded. So we've tried to take a different approach to, to roadmapping than I think we typically see in the DoD uh, where like our roadmap is living and it's, it, it, it's, it, it exists, it's alive um, and it helps us. It helps us guide priorities. Our roadmap uh, encompasses um, a, at least 10 technical priority areas. We're only able to focus on a couple of those priority areas at a time, you know, so if we if we're using like the Jira tooling suite, you know, we'd call those components in the Jira plans tool. And then we actually are able to map our epics, our features, our stories, our, you know, tech debt, spikes, bugs, like uh, kind of the way software like in some circles like should be done, so to speak. Uh, we're able to map our work in progress directly up to roadmap priorities. So some of those priorities um, are, are highly technical in nature, so facilitating uh, AI machine learning directly in TAC, and that's kind of a big step for our community. Uh, we've got a great partnership with the DARPA Share program uh, to where DARPA Share, uh, which is highly decentralized sharing of, of secure information on multiple uh, kind of caveats of, of a given classification level. Um, 
we uh, we envision including DARPA Share, for example, uh, in in a, a future major version update of TAC. Um, and, and so that's going to be a big deal for uh, for for our SOF that operate with partner nations on a regular basis because they'll be on the, the same classification level, different caveats. Share allows them to operate within that classification level at different caveats. Um, so heavily premised on TAC. We've got a good collaboration with that team. Their engineers are working with our engineers. So um, I, I don't think I'm remiss in saying uh, or it off of things. I think it's a good thing, um, but but share is likely going to make its way into the, the core tack mill offering in the future. Uh, but then also, like we're if you know if you've seen like our our tack offsite presentations, like our slides that we put out, we are like laser focused on continuous delivery. Um, I've known everybody. I think like in the kind of the the, the center of the tack community knows uh, that delivery deployment of the tack products like it's definitely doable. Um, but but it takes like a small dedicated IT section to do and to manage. We really, in order to scale TAC and make it the, the DOD information dominance platform of choice uh, for both us and our allied forces, we believe that delivery has got to be a lot simpler and a lot less painful and, and very low friction. So um, I'd say we're putting um, reasonable investment toward making delivery, making delivery of the tech products and continuous delivery of the tech products, which uh, really encompasses a lot of technical practices. You know, it's not just like the proverbial like CICD or pipeline. It's like how, how are we ensuring the security, the, the quality of the software we ship, how are we making the deployment and, and management, or if like if we mess up and ship a bad build, like how are we making rollback of TAC? much easier. Um, we can do that in pockets, but but we're not very good at that right now. So uh, making delivery of TAC easier for, for anybody in the community is is probably priority number one for us right now. Yeah. And that would put you in the position of operating like a software factory. Exactly. Basically. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. The, the, I say, I say the vision is, is, is like, it's noble. It's, it's in line with like modern practices. It's in line with what we think the DOD and our allies need to, to win, quite frankly. Um, and, and we're like diligently working toward that on, on a regular basis. Yeah. Daily basis. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Great, I really Kate. appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. This is GovCast. I'm your host, Kate Macri, live from Sofic. GovCast, along with CyberCast and HealthCast, is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com. 